You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Welcome back to the Golden Nuggets podcast. And today we are creating a highlights package. As you know, I like to get a few golden nuggets from each guest. And over the past 20 episodes with guests from all different walks of life and all over the world and different stages in their career, we found that there were two common themes, kindness and honesty. So let's find out what their definition of kindness and honesty means. First up, we have Stuart Lancaster. A slightly abstract question. Um, if you were to describe yourself, um, if you describe a leader as a picture, what would it look like? It's, it, can it be a photo? <laughs> it can be anything, anything you want. It's up to you. The reason I mention it is because um, the other day I went, uh, I went up to the farm and uh, in this village of Colgate, there is no light pollution. It's like properly dark at night. Um, and it was one of those beautiful days we've just had recently. And obviously it was the, it was the night time. And the North Star had just come out. Uh, my mum had come out and she said to me, there's your dad up there. Uh, and um, we both stood and looked at the, at the North Star. And then, I don't know, maybe half an hour later, I went back out. Um, just to check the front door was locked. And I looked up and the, honestly, there must have been, it, felt, it looked like a million stars, a million. Um, if I could have taken a photo of that um, with all those stars in the sky, and just I was looking up thinking, geez, you know, the opportunities. I remember someone saying to me, you know, you reach for the stars and all that sort of stuff. But it was really, I'd just take a photo of that and I'd say, that's what leadership is. Leadership is guiding people to those stars. Um, ideally the North Star, but there are so many others out there. Um, that's what that's what a vision for me of a leader is. Someone looking up at a at a, at a night sky where the uh, it's full of stars. It's interesting because I asked that question to a bunch of kids, and one of the answers was the first man out of the trenches, and that really sort of hit me quite hard in terms of like the bravery and the courageous nature of someone to putting their body on the line and demonstrate to the rest of the troops that they're willing to be the first person out and to, to brave the unknown. People follow people probably because of the, the, the things that they do and their actions, because words come pretty cheap, to be honest, and working as uh, cooperatively is much more powerful than working for someone directly. I mean, obviously everyone has to hold themselves accountable for their roles and responsibilities, but... At the same time, like, I think if you do that yourself, you don't need to be held accountable by anyone else. Next up is Russell Earnshaw. He believes creativity and awareness and decision-making is some of the key life skills that you need to be successful. There's, there's loads of data out there. You can get data on anything. It's probably understanding what's the, the key data that's going to make a difference. And it's then how do we engage with data? How do we bring it to life how do we connect people up with it and I know they've had a salary cap breach however I think Saracens would do it well they would collect more data than anyone but they would then think about well actually how do we deliver it what are the stories we tell 
who tells the story. So they've had like magicians and comedians in and deliver some of their stuff. And you know, I would often ask professional sports people, like, what's the most impactful meeting you've been in? And I'm met by a pretty empty set of eyes. Um, and however, Saracens would make stuff memorable. Yeah. It would stick. Tell me about, have you, have you heard a story about a magician going in? Like, what did they yeah, do? Yeah, they've had magicians deliver, they've had uh, comedians deliver, they would bring in, you know, the wolves and the, and the snakes and stuff, <laughs> and whoa, type stuff, and they would want to connect up emotion with learning as an example. Yeah. Um, I, I love, you know, magicians are really interesting. I've, I've spent a bit of time, so there's a couple of things to think about with those, like a related world for a, for a, for a teacher as an example. So... If you're a magician, you've actually got to be able to tell a story so that other people then tell the story. Oh, I saw that amazing magician. Oh, I was in that amazing geography lesson and this. Um, the thing I love about comedians and where I think it's a really good related world for coaches and teachers is no one gets more immediate feedback. <laughs> oh, my God, they didn't laugh at my joke. How am I going to adapt? So if you want to see a profession that have to notice their audience, check levels of engagement and then adapts or leave the stage really quickly, then that there they are. So actually, the best coaches, the best teachers I see, they're actually, they're exactly like that. Mm-hmm. They've got a plan, they've got a direction of travel, but actually they're able to adapt to the people in front of them. So like, firstly, I'd just like to say thank you to Russell, Rusty as he likes to be called. Because without him, a lot of guests wouldn't come on my show. He also just set, this train off for me when I first wanted to start being a bit different around my own teaching and learning. He was the man that really, he's my top influencer. He's his golden nuggets of creativity, resilience, and being kind. I went to a lot of his workshops and I still go to some of his seminars. I've been online with zoom for him. God knows how many times. And he is a fascinating bloke. Like he's got the magic academy, and he calls us wizards. And so for 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 me, like the magician story really rung true because I've been there with him in the moment. Going, he does model engagement brilliantly well, and I think that story about the magicians create modeling engagement was probably the most impactful one from this episode because it's immediate feedback. And if you haven't got the engagement as a magician, you know about it. And next up, we have Mary McBain. And we spoke about progressing sex education and the importance of communication and consent. I think we need to talk about sex in a, in a much more relaxed way. Because good sex is great. And sex where pe- both people are comfortable with each other and confident with each other. It's fun. It should be fun. But it also can be really embarrassing. There's weird noises. Things look weird. Like, it's not... Things don't look like they do in porn most of the time and our bodies aren't always like that. And I think learning that that's all, not like all of it is fine, it's all normal. But being with a partner that you that you can talk to, it, I think is going to make the whole experience better and not feeling like, I was talking a lot with the girls about needing to be validated by somebody else, to be validated by a guy and... I keep going off on so many tangents, but my I get so excited about this subject. But one of the things that I was thinking was that if, you, if you're too scared to say no to a guy because he might not like you, or, or vice versa, to a girl, because they might not like you, they're probably, and they, they might be rude about you for saying no or call you a prick tease or, or whatever it else, or slut shame you. 
They're probably not someone you want to be intimate with anyway, and it's probably not going to be a great experience. Mm. If you're not even at a point with that person where you can be like, no, I don't want to, or I want to do this, or can you do this to me, or whatever it is, you want to be comfortable with them. So it's all this stuff that I think is so important. And I think being able to speak up to somebody or or, or honour what you want or, or have dominion over your own body comes back again to this feeling of self-worth and self-confidence. Because I don't think I had that for the longest time. I had no self-worth, very little self-confidence. And I think that really fed into the fact that in those moments I, I, I didn't have a voice. Yeah, that is quite a powerful message, isn't it? Having the confidence to speak your mind. I think that was the biggest thing. That, uh, And then how do you gain confidence? So that in the moment, like she said, she feels okay to chat and okay to tell someone their honest opinion. Authenticity of thoughts is so interesting to me. Like, you can read people's non-verbals and paralinguistics, and that's like 90% apparently of communication. And the other 10% is the words they say. But like, the words they say, like, people say stuff and they don't even mean it. Well, they say stuff and it's like, I don't even mean that, but it's just coming out of my, my mouth because it's maybe what they want to hear. It's like, at what stage is, is, is that right, by the way? At what stage is it's like you feel constrained to say what you honestly think because you're worried about something else, whether it be the person, whether it be the context. Like I get that some thoughts might want to be more private than others, but when we're talking about consent... You should be able to speak your honest truth. Next up is Richard Shorter, and he's a Baptist church minister. And we had a chat about working with families and providing quality coaching for parents. I started off by running a skate park as a young youth worker, thinking that I was pretty cool and trendy, and noticing that kids went home, which is an obvious uh, realization. But in your early twenties, you know you're really fixated on what's in front of you, and I noticed just the incredible impact that parents had on the outcomes of young people. Uh, for the kids who came to the skate park and in my early 20s I realised that I needed to be far more holistic and far more supportive of parents and helping parents thrive and feel encouraged in their role so that we would get better outcomes for young people uh, and that has started me on this long journey of trying to engage with parents in a way which doesn't feel like they're being lectured or told off or put in a box but feels like they're being encouraged supported and that's really really honest because parenting is ridiculous ridiculously subjective uh, there's lots of gray in parenting and giving parents permission to explore that gray the subjectivity and the natural challenges have come that come with parenting that was a fantastic clip because what richard does is he makes you feel at ease straight away like he goes into the conversation knowing that it's not an easy conversation to have like he's giving parenting advice but you don't feel as though he's lecturing you He's encouraging and supporting you, asking challenging questions, but at the same time doing it in the right way. And that's really, by the way, really difficult to do. Not as Even as a teacher, when I'm practicing it every single day in terms of guiding kids and dealing with parents and dealing with other teachers, I get it wrong all the time. And, you know, I'm not saying I get it wrong all the time, but there's a lot of time when I get it, you know, not quite. I reflect on it and think I could have done that better or I could have asked a better question or... 
I could have made them feel at ease better or my mind wasn't quite there at the time. I probably shouldn't have approached it. It was the wrong timing. Like he, he is an absolute expert at this. Next up is Warren Abrahams. And we had a cracking chat about being vulnerable and what that means. And I think the, the biggest message from this was that it doesn't matter where you're from or what you're doing you just got to give things a go and it's fine to, to feel scared. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one they throw out there these days, isn't it? Especially in the coaching world, um, it's, it's being vulnerable constantly. Um, so, yeah, I suppose the way I look at it is um, we are in a business of or whatever business you are, whether you're coaching, whether you're teaching, whether you, it's whatever it might be, um, or you're just in a business world, um, it is, we want to ultimately make people better. And I think most of the time we are afraid of being afraid. So <clears throat> that limits us. And so what I mean by that is we got to put ourselves, because when you want to make people better, it ultimately starts with yourself. Again, I always reference Nelson Mandela, the guy sat in in Robben Island for 27 years. Uh, one of his wardens, um, one day, uh, and, and I might not do just this reference justice, but one of the things I read in his book is this warden was very rude to him on this particular day. Um, and within that, in that moment, he sort of, he, he said to the guy, look, one day I'll be standing on the other side. Yeah, I mean, Warren's story was fascinating coming from, in a, in a time where the apartheid was happening, in a time where his father was a prison officer, in a time where he had a, a black bus and there was a white bus, in a time where he was one of six students all congregated together at Stellenbosch University and it was the first time they accepted black students into the university, to, to break from that environment to go and coach abroad and become probably one of the best sports coaches in my opinion in 2020 across any code he's a fantastic coach he's a super coach being vulnerable i think is really really important as a message like doing the scary things being scared being being vulnerable like to actually have the bravery to go and do things that you don't feel comfortable doing being able to grow because of that experience and that exposure i think was the main message i got from that next up is dr daniel fujiwara and we had a great chat about well-being how it impacts productivity in the workplace and his work 15 years in the government and in international organisations and how could this be applied to the education system creating better students teachers and employees let's have a listen so income's an interesting one because um it brings into focus uh the the difficulties that we get in kind of the media and that kind of thing where these kind of stories get reported because the journalist or whoever is reporting that doesn't understand the, the well-being metric that's being used. So all of what you've said is true when we look at happiness in the moment or happiness during a day. 
So, well, you know, salary is important up to about a point. It's the same in the US. I think it's about $90,000 or something in the US, pretty similar. And it will start to drop off. But when we look at an evaluation of someone's life, so that's life satisfaction rather than how happy you feel right now. It, it does start to tailor off, but it's always there. It's always positive. So when you're on 100,000 and if you move to 300,000, right, that jump compared to zero to 100,000 um, is is not as big. You know, 100,000 pounds when you're richer is, isn't such a big impact, but it still has an impact. We never see a negative relationship when we look at an evaluation of someone's life. So if if it's just kind of how happy you feel in the moment and that is determined by whether you're watching a film right now or whether you're having a good meal or, you know, you're out with your partner and that kind of thing, income has a little bit of an impact, but it, it starts to tailor off after a while. But when we think about our lives overall from an evaluation, actually income income is always significantly and, and uh, positively associated with that, even, you know, regardless of how rich we, we, we see these people um, mm. in the data set. So there's an interesting difference there. And... And the media likes, I think, likes to tell that story that um, income has no impact on your well-being. It's quite a nice counterintuitive type of story. Um, and it's true, but it's just dependent on which measure of well-being you're using. And it's it's only when you measure these hedonic experience measures of well-being where you find that. I mean, I, I literally, you know, it's, it's a long old conversation, this, isn't it? I think productivity you mentioned on the on the pod as well was quite interesting about it's up to four. It can affect you by up to 40 percent. Thought that was a really interesting insight in terms of some people do things naturally to create a better work life balance and are better at self care, and ultimately are more productive at the workplace because they have the right balance and they understand what it means to be balanced as well. Next up is with Aaron Walsh, and even though we had a really great chat about his perspective from a sporting background, actually a lot of the chat was about how you could apply these skills into the real life let's have a listen so at the end of the day what there is no better opportunity to embrace pressure than by embracing something you're going to be judged over and that judgment's going to be well known mm. and their judgment isn't whether the public got the numbers no they don't care about that it's their teammates mm. so you know the judgment is the trainers the coaches like everyone knows whether you got done a good time or not so so I think there's no better way to be able to really start to deal with your relationship with pressure. You know, and we talk about the concept of walking towards the fire or walking away from the fire, right? So if mm. pressure's a fire and you come over the hill and there's a fire, what are you going to do? Yeah, a good person would say, I better go get a hose here. I need to walk towards this and take care of it. You know, someone who doesn't have any good relationship with difficulty would say, oh, I need to just turn my back and walk the other way. I'm walking away from the fire. Mm. Um, so I think little tests like this are great opportunities to further stretch that muscle of your relationship with pressure and, and how to reframe it in a way that will help you walk through it and towards it rather than away from it. So that comment about reframing I thought was really important about changing perspective of the situation. So he's talking about walking towards or away from pressure. Like we were discussing before about doing the scary things scared and being vulnerable and allowing to and facilitating that. I think it's important to experience anxiety. I think it's important to understand the relationship you have with it. I think what's really nice is someone like, say, Ricky Gervais, who does it so well where 
he's obviously a famous superstar now anyway, but he wasn't at one point. And he was will he was able to, in the moment, have a chat with anyone and everyone and just be himself and say exactly what's on his mind. Like he was at the Golden Globes, what, like three times, four times, or however many times. And he literally just said, and I, I'm not agreeing with what he said, but I'm just saying like he didn't have he didn't hold back. And he felt completely at ease with saying things in front of the most, you know, talented artists and actors in the world. In part one, we heard some amazing clips from Stuart Lancaster, Mary McBain, Russell Earnshaw, Richard Shorter, Warren Abrahams, Daniel Fujiwara and Aaron Walsh. In part two, we hear from Damien Hughes, Abid Ahmed, Ben Brown, Sam Waddell, Rick Ferris, and Dr. Bev Meekin. Next up is Damien Hughes. He's a professor of organisational psychology, and he's also the co-host of High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey. We had a chat about what does it take to create a high-performance culture, and what examples have you got? Anyway, let's have a listen. I'm talking to Ole Solskjaer about Manchester United. Ten years ago, he was the reserve team coach at Manchester United, and I went in one day, and me and I, I sat down, and Alex Ferguson came to join us while we were um, in the canteen having a cup of tea. And the conversation got on. At the time, there was a young centre-forward uh, that had come through the academy called Danny Welbeck, that they were sort of really pushing to go through. And I asked the question, why have you decided that Welbeck is, is, is worth your investment of time? And they both gave a brilliant example. They said, the reason we've, we want to push for Danny Welbeck is, they said, said, he's the only player that stays behind and helps, and helps the coaches collect the footballs after training. And I went, that's an interesting answer. What do you mean by that? And they went, well, I said, well, what does that tell you about Danny Welbeck? He's selfless. He cares about other people and he's prepared to play his part. He doesn't expect that everybody to do things for him. And he said, because he always goes for the most difficult ball, the ball that's furthest away or hardest to get to. He said, so who wouldn't want a guy that demonstrates these behaviours when nobody's watching in your culture? So they're clear that in the culture of Manchester United, you've got to be a team player. And Danny Welbeck going and collecting those balls demonstrated his respect for team ethos even though he might not have been doing it to, uh, for show, he was just doing it because that's the sort of person he was. And you find that in these cultures or these individuals, they have these really clear, what I, de- I so I describe it as trademark behaviours. These are non-negotiable behaviours that when you show up, these are the behaviours that, that, that you can guarantee I'm going to demonstrate. And that's as true for Chris Hoy now, eight years after he's retired, as it was when he was on the track. That's as true for Danny Welbeck when he was a kid coming through at Manchester United as it would be today. He's somebody that is still respectful of uh, uh, of other people. The little things that people don't see is a motto that Ealing Trail Finders have, right? And it's on the back of their shirts. And it's like people that go around after everyone's left the changing rooms and sweeping up the dirt afterwards. It's called Sweeping the Sheds. It was in the book Legacy by James Kerr as well. He mentioned it about the New Zealand team, why they're successful. And that's one of their traits that they had. Um, The point with all of this is like, these people are giving their advice and their opinions. And if you follow this advice or this opinions, doesn't necessarily equate to having a successful life and doing whatever you want to do. 
But there is probably one commonality that if you don't demonstrate them, you're definitely not going to get a chance or a look in anyway. Next up is Abed Ahmed. And we talked about how he used drama exercises to work on his impediment and to build his confidence and resilience. He also runs a stammer support group and works back at his old school teaching maths at Washwood Heath Academy. So for someone who won the new teacher award, it's definitely someone that I wanted to listen to. Of course, I've seen a lot of um, friends, a lot of people that go down the wrong path. And it's so easy to, to do that, especially if you come from a um, local area like myself. And school is definitely that place where you can break that cycle of deprivation. So I can't, you know, um, emphasize it enough just how important school is. And I know that um, a lot of uh, famous uh, people and a lot of like famous uh, rich people um, that didn't do so well in school or they do say, oh, it doesn't matter if you don't do well at school, um, look at me. And that is true that you can still be successful if you don't do well at school. But what I've always said to people is that there's not that many of them just leave with qualifications and then you can you know do whatever you want to do and stuff um and my last piece of uh, um, advice is just be a lovely human being i think the world really needs a lot of them and especially at a time where where like you know like there's so much stuff going on in the world so many countries you know going to, to war with other countries and i just think you know what man it's definitely a time to be kind to people because um you know like it's not that expensive but to be kind it doesn't cost a thing at all that's a really powerful message to be honest for me being kind because it doesn't cost anything and you know he puts it very clearly there in terms of education can provide opportunities and it can also give you options as well which is funny my dad always said that as well he said get a good education because you can always then turn stuff down so you can say thank you, but no thank you. He also mentions about people that you know are successful and are very rich and they didn't have a good education, but like he said, they are very few and far between. And if you're going to base your life on probabilities, why not stack the odds in your favour? Next up on the pod was Ben Brown, and we had a chat around his work in the field of journalism, uh, both as a presenter but also as a war correspondent. Some of his journeys were absolutely fascinating. I'm quite addicted to Facebook and Twitter because you just scroll through and you you know drop in and out, and it's not that demanding. It's and actually I read. I think I read fewer books now. I mean, when I was thirteen, fourteen, I was reading sort of. And it sounds very precocious, but I was reading sort of Charles Dickens and Thomas Hardy novels. Uh, because I, I had nothing else to do. I was brought up in the countryside, I, uh, you know, and I would just read long novels and read newspapers. Now you just go on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or, and that can entertain you for hours. Um, so that's one thing. But also, as you say about arguments, I think the the trouble with something like Twitter is it's a lot of people, you know, making their arguments, um, but not necessarily having a balanced argument. Often people like to you know, say something and it's in a kind of echo chamber, it's their opinions and then other people come up and support them and that's kind of enough for them. Whereas, uh, yeah, I, I think possibly the art of reasoned argument is not always what it should be nowadays. I mean, I, I do 
I, I, I worry there's a lot of anger, especially on Twitter, actually. For example, if I do, you know, if I do an interview um, with a politician or something, I will often get criticised for not being challenging enough or being or being too challenging. So you get it from both ways and you suddenly you just get this hail of sort of stuff against you from both sides. And, and, and that's... That's one of the things at the BBC that we have kind of got used to, um, people kind of having a go at us from both sides. And in some ways that makes you feel like you're doing your job. But at the same time, I do feel there's, there is a, a lot of, you know, for all its benefits, I think there's quite a lot of anger out there sometimes on social media. What I really like about Ben Brown's interview was how he brings up a lot of his past and about what it used to be like for him. And I'm fairly sure he wouldn't feel ashamed of me saying the fact that he probably grew up before the times of social media and the impact of smartphones. And with his experience of growing up reading, because in the countryside, that's all you could do, and reading books and novels and newspapers, that allows you to absorb a huge amount of information and try and create more reasoned arguments, which is what he mentions there. I think if kids like himself would be the first to admit are just scrolling through Facebook and Instagram all day where there is bite-sized information like one-minute videos or a small paragraph for them to absorb, it's probably not going into the same level of detail or context that a newspaper would or a, a novel would do about a certain particular you know, interest. Next up is Sam Waddell and he is the head of philosophy in a school in West London. We had a chat around religion and how philosophy courses are changing i think increasingly people are turning back now to religion as quite a serious alternative to uh, a kind of secular existence i think it's a real challenge to know how far secularism and religion where they rub up against each other i think there's an awful lot of kind of there are areas of conflict um you know as an rs teacher School, you know, school I teach at is not really much of an issue, but certainly, you know, the one of the kind of classic problems RS teachers face is when someone says something that, out of context, could be seen as pretty discriminatory or hurtful, um, but then comes at it from the perspective of religion. I, I've had moments like this. In fact, uh, a few years ago, I, I taught a kid from a Catholic background, a French Catholic background. And this this kid was part of my debate club, and they expressed a view that they thought gay couples shouldn't be able to adopt, because in their view, the family unit kind of ordained by God was should be a, a man and a woman. And while he, this student accepted that maybe gay couples should be allowed to marry as a principle of equality, they felt that. A child should always be a you know, should always be in, in that kind of traditional family unit of, of male and female. Now, most of the other students disagreed, as as did I. But I think what was interesting is how many, how some a lot of the other students felt really threatened by that. And I even had some other students suggest that this person shouldn't be allowed to come to debate club anymore because their view was somehow completely horrific and what they'd said shouldn't have been said and they shouldn't have to be a member of a club where someone held this view. And that kind of antagonism between sort of secular views and religious views, I think that's becoming more and more 
pronounced uh, in some quarters. And that worries me. One of the things I, I do really try and do in terms of teaching RS and teaching philosophy is try to provide a framework by which people can better tolerate points of view they don't like. I really liked Sam's perspective on being able to tolerate other people. So we mentioned about different perspectives in a previous episode. And I think it's really, this is a really important point, uh, mainly because, you know, we discussed also about the use of Twitter and social media and things being bite-sized and people getting emotions, emotions making bad choices. And then those bad choices create this antagonistic environment, which is what he's just mentioned as well. So, and there's, there's, and what he's saying is that we need to tolerate these things because otherwise we don't get engagement. If we don't get engagement, we can't, even if you disagree with something, they won't be able to self-reflect on their own ideals and whether they're actually questioning their own thoughts. So, for example, if kids get really offended by someone's viewpoint, well, if you kick them out of that debating society, how will they ever change their perspective? Next up is Bryn Ferris, and we had a fascinating chat about how his journey from leaving the corporate game to be, becoming a young entrepreneur and the challenges that he faced. Let's have a listen. How did you create a buzz around your product in a market that I'm sure is very competitive? Um, I think we've made something that's genuinely different. Um, there, there, are, there are two other plant-based protein shakes that I can think of, but they're stuffed full of rubbish. Um, our ingredients list has nine ingredients, all of which you'll find in your kitchen probably. Um, and I think that's, the, that's, that's what we've really tried to do, make something that's clean, uh, I guess our ethos is that, you know, we kind of believe if you, if you mess with nature, it'll probably mess with you. And so we try and you know, stay on the safe side of that and keep mm. things as kind of unprocessed as possible. Um, so mm. I think that immediately resonates with customers, the clean labeled aspect of it. Um, and I think in a crowded market space with so many ingredients lists that, you know, are longer than your arm and that you can't pronounce half of them. That's mm. perhaps, I think, how, how we've started to kind of cut out a bit of a brand for ourselves. When you, when you had that reality moment, I call it the magic moment. What was it? Yeah. It's a bit It's a bit cheesy, actually. I think you probably have a chap called Gary Vaynerchuk, I think, or Vaynerchuk. Yeah, the American guy. Yeah, and there was a paid yeah. ad on my Facebook, and it was basically him saying, listen, if you've just graduated, it was a bit weird, because I'd had just graduated. So if you just graduated, you're in a position where you're literally in the least risky part of your life. You probably don't have a mortgage. You probably don't have kids. You're probably not married. You know, this is the best time to do something outrageously risky if you can, if you are you know, able to live perhaps with your parents and not pay anything. I mean, why would you not? And I just realized, like, I would hate the idea to look back and feel like I missed an opportunity. And it felt like an opportunity in that sense to just have a crack. And if it failed, we'll kind of, oh, well. Um, mm. and, that, and that was it. That was literally it. And then and then that was the same time I had a conversation with Gabe and, and, and then it just went from there, really. I love his honesty. I love Bryn's honesty. I think he describes his years of his, his struggles with brutal honesty about how it actually was for him and he doesn't hold back and I really like the fact that he's given a true account of his experiences rather than trying to over glamorize things or negate things he's actually said look we've made lots of silly mistakes and we are constantly reflecting on them and learning from them I think if we're going to align you know what this podcast was in terms of for the two common themes like kindness to himself like he's still not really letting it affect him but at the same time he's being completely honest with himself so that he can move forward 
Last in the series is Dr. Bev Meakin, and we had a lovely chat about how her own past experiences have shaped her career, but also about the importance of relationships and the future of relationships for the younger generations. Let's take a listen. Emotional intelligence, insight, knowing oneself, reading non-verbals, um, and in the moment, having a, a positive, meaningful engagement with someone else so that they are they feel alive, they feel connected with that, with that person. How do different people do that? I think it is what I've been saying of knowing yourself, mm. knowing how you would respond in a certain situation, mm. um, responding, mm. seeing what you get back from the other person, mm. noticing what's coming up in you in response to that other person. So it's this back and two, back and two. But there's always that part of of me as a counsellor and, and what these other people were saying is when you know yourself better and you know your usual responses, you're also partly outside of yourself and watching yourself at the same time mm. as being in the relationship. So you're in two positions, if you can, at the same time. But you, you when you're in that relationship and you're in that, what you'd call a dialogical conversation, as well as seeing the impact of what I am saying on you, I'm also noticing how you might be seeing me. Mm. And I'm also thinking about what are we creating together here? Mm. It's, uh, conversations are co-created. So, you know, how are we interacting to create this together? And if it's not working, what could I do differently? How could I shift my position a little bit and um, maybe adjust? And the, with the research, the students were telling me because they knew themselves better... They were more uh, agile at, at shifting position. Bev really brought a, a really nice, simplistic viewpoint as to how to create effective conversations. What I really enjoyed was she challenged myself on how I co-create a conversation and do I actually adjust my position when I feel as though the conversation isn't being co-created or the fact that it's going in a direction that I don't enjoy. And it's like this reframing idea of changing your perspective on something when someone's mentioned something or someone's challenged you on something, just like David Sharkey challenged me on empathy and the definition of that. I felt it was really powerful that she actually brought to light the reasons why effective communication helps build rapport and trust and builds on the foundations for how to have an authentic relationship with someone. Okay, and that wraps it up for a Golden Nuggets highlights package. And thanks so much for all the guests for contributing. They've all done so selflessly and given their time for free. Over the next few episodes, we're going to focus on different careers and how to access the industries that they work in. And if you've got any suggestions for any future guests, please don't hesitate to contact me on at Golden Nuggets Why Now on Instagram or Facebook. And thanks for listening. <laughs>